I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. Ken Ham, the founder of the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter, has become synonymous with modern creationism. Yet popular views of creationism are clouded by misconceptions. In this episode, Ken endeavors to set the record straight, what we're for and what we're against. This first message is aimed at fellow Christians who don't think that the Old Testament really matters anymore. It comes as no shock to hear that young people, especially millennials, are leaving the church in the U.S. in great numbers. George Barna reports that more than two-thirds of skeptics have attended Christian churches in the past. So what happened? Well, according to research conducted by America's Research Group for my book Already Gone, one major issue is a lack of apologetics teaching. Millennials have not been taught to defend their faith and the world's scoffing and arguments have drawn them away. But it goes deeper. Our young people don't even know what the Bible teaches, or that its grand narrative, beginning in Genesis, points to salvation through Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. These biblically uninformed young people do not understand the purpose of the Old Testament, so they think the church is just picking and choosing what parts of the Bible to obey. When pastors use Old Testament terminology such as come to the altar, they reinforce that idea. Now, there's nothing wrong with using Old Testament terminology. Indeed, New Testament authors frequently did. But if a writer was addressing a largely Gentile audience, people not acquainted with Jewish history and beliefs, he would avoid using Old Testament terms or would explain them carefully. If he was writing to a Jewish audience, he could easily refer to the temple, sacrifices, priests, and so on, because they had the foundational knowledge to understand him. In the book of Acts, we read two very different sermons, one by Peter and one by Paul. At Pentecost, Peter delivered a powerful sermon in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 40. This sermon was full of Old Testament quotations and themes, because the audience was Jewish and had an Old Testament background. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was addressing Greeks in faraway Athens. Although he started with the Creator revealed in Genesis, his sermon was not full of Old Testament quotations, because his Gentile audience knew little or nothing of the Old Testament. Though highly educated, they were biblically illiterate. Paul understood his audience and tailored his message accordingly. In a sense, the West used to be a Jewish audience. Many unbelievers knew biblical history and largely believed the Bible had at least some authority. But today, most millennials who have grown up in the church do not know the Old Testament well. They are no longer Jewish, but Gentile in their thinking. To minister to modern-day Gentiles, we need to help them understand the vital nature of the Old Testament. It provides the history that the New Testament and the life of Christ on earth is based on. It reveals the origin of our sin and our desperate need for Jesus the Savior. In Genesis, we learn that God created a perfect world, 
but Adam and Eve brought death and suffering by their sin. Their descendants likewise chose disobedience. The world became so wicked that God judged it with a global flood. Only righteous Noah and his family survived. Just a few generations later, at the Tower of Babel, mankind rebelled again. Eventually, God chose a covenant people and gave them His law. They failed to live by it time and time again. This history clearly shows we cannot keep God's law on our own. With this backdrop, the New Testament teaching of salvation and restoration through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes sense. Salvation is by faith alone, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, in Christ alone, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. What we could never do on our own, Christ did for us, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. Throughout the Bible, we see the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. It's about Jesus from beginning to end. The Mosaic Law does the same thing. It highlights our inability to keep God's commands. The sacrifice of animals and the priesthood were pictures of Christ who was to come. Jesus, through His death, burial, and resurrection, has made the first covenant obsolete, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, and has brought us into the new covenant, Luke chapter 22, verse 20, foretold by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. God does not change, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, but this doesn't mean rules or punishments can't change. For instance, man was created vegetarian, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. But following the flood, God made a new covenant with Noah, allowing man to eat meat, Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. The Mosaic law included dietary restrictions, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 47, but the new covenant lifted them, Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. Since there won't be any death in the new heavens and the new earth, we know we will be vegetarian once again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Did God change? Not at all. But God's rules for us can change under various covenants. The Old Testament, especially the Mosaic Law, seems to be a big stumbling block to millennials because they aren't receiving the instruction fundamental to understanding the redemptive history of the Old Testament and how it undergirds the person and work of Jesus. Christian leaders, pastors, teachers, and parents need to teach others how to view the Old Testament and the law as Christians under the New Covenant. Be sure to use the Old Testament. It forms the basis for our theology. But make sure your audience understands how to view it so they can grow in the knowledge of Christ and in godliness. The name of that article is The Old Testament Still Matters. The next article in this series by Ken Ham addresses another common misconception about creationists. If creationists are unwilling to change their basic beliefs, does that mean they're not true scientists? Some evolutionists and some creationists have a serious misunderstanding when it comes to dealing with the creation-evolution issue. Are creationists willing to change their views? And if not, isn't this contrary to science? 
When I quote secular articles claiming some new evidence that rewrites certain parts of the evolutionary story, evolutionists claim this is a good thing, because change is part of the self-correcting mechanism of science. In contrast, such evolutionists usually claim that creationists aren't prepared to change, and because they don't allow for any self-correction, they aren't scientific. At the same time, I've had to deal with creationists who don't want to change some long-held, cherished idea from outside the Bible. Even though new evidence points in a different direction, they cling to old ideas because they have used them to answer some difficult questions in the past. Changing models or presuppositions. Both views overlook an important distinction between models and presuppositions. The best way to explain this is a real-life situation I experienced that sums up the confusion. When the Creation Museum opened in 2007, I was interviewed by a well-known evolutionist whom the BBC had contracted for a radio program. As we sat together, the conversation, as I recall it to the best of my ability, went something like this. Evolutionist. So you admit that your views about creation are based on the Bible and are set, so you are not prepared to change. Ken Ham. I am not prepared to change anything the Bible clearly states. Evolutionist. Your views about six literal days of creation and a global flood are set. You're not prepared to change those? Ken Ham. I'm not prepared to change anything that is stated in the Bible. Evolutionist. See, that's religion. Your views are set. Evolutionists are real scientists because we are prepared to change our views. As we discover more evidence, our views will change. That's what science does. But your views are set because you are not about science, but religion. Real scientists are prepared to change their ideas. Ken Ham. Now, you don't believe the Bible's account of creation. You won't even consider the possibility of creation in six days, that death came after sin, that God created man from dust and woman from his side, or that there was a worldwide flood, will you? Evolutionist. No, of course not. Ken Ham. Are you prepared to change that? Evolutionist. You are not prepared to change. Ken Ham. I'm not prepared to change what the Bible states, but creationists are prepared to change their models built upon the Bible. On the other hand, you are not prepared to change your belief in evolution by natural processes. I went on to explain to this evolutionist that she, like me, had certain basic views she was not prepared to change. The same is true of every famous evolutionist, such as Bill Nye, the science guy. All evolutionists believe the universe and all life came about by natural processes. That's a foundational belief they are not prepared to change, no matter what the evidence. I find that many people, whether creationists or evolutionists, don't seem to understand the difference between presuppositions, foundational beliefs on which we build our worldview, and the models built on those presuppositions. Now, for Christians who build their thinking on the Bible, the presupposition that the Bible is the infallible Word of God and the foundation for our worldview is not subject to change. This should be the stance of all Christians. However, models built on God's Word are man-made, so they're subject to change. For instance, when the famous book that started the modern creation movement, The Genesis Flood, was published in 1961, it promoted a model that became very popular among creationists. Based on the author's interpretation of Scripture regarding the second day of creation, they proposed that the original Earth was surrounded by a protective vapor canopy. This model seemed to explain many issues, such as the amazing longevity of people in the pre-flood world. Now, many in the next generation of biblical creationists rejected the canopy based on theological and scientific objections. What Scripture states concerning the second day of creation, our presupposition, has not changed. But the model built on Scripture has changed 
or even been rejected by modern creationists. You can find out the details in The Collapse of the Canopy Model at AnswersInGenesis.org. Our Commitment to Presuppositions When I debated Bill Nye in February of 2014, I publicly admitted my presupposition of building my worldview on the Bible. I challenged Bill Nye to admit publicly his presupposition of building his thinking on evolutionary naturalism. However, as is usual for evolutionists, he would not admit his starting point of naturalism. He kept insisting his view was science. That's why I kept emphasizing that there's a big difference between historical science, our interpretations based on beliefs about the past, such as God's revelation in the Bible concerning origins, and observational science, knowledge we can gain through direct observation, using one's senses, and based on repeatable testing in the present. Thus, for both a creationist and an evolutionist, our presuppositions, or starting points, strongly influence our historical science. But when we build models on these starting points, we rely on observational science, observations in the present. Over and over again, evolutionists have to modify their models as new evidence comes along. However, most evolutionists are not prepared to consider changing their presuppositions. At the Bill Nye debate, I was asked what would change my mind concerning what I believed. I replied that nothing would because I was totally convinced the Bible is the infallible, unchanging Word of God. However, when Bill Nye was asked the same question, he said that out-of-place fossils would be such an example to change his mind. However, I had already given him an example of an out-of-place fossil that he ignored. Really, Bill Nye was as unchanging on his presuppositions as I was. So the question then comes down to whose presuppositions are correct. In an ultimate sense, as a fallible human, I cannot absolutely prove my presupposition concerning the truth of Scripture. Only God can ultimately reveal that truth to someone. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And only God can change someone's presuppositions. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, when I was debating Bill Nye, and earlier when I was being interviewed by the evolutionist, I recognized that I couldn't change their presupposition concerning naturalism and their rejection of God's Word. But I also understood, according to God's Word, that I needed to do my best to answer their objections to what I believe. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Above all, I needed to point them to the Word of God that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We are to do our best to convince those who don't believe the truth of God's Word, understanding that only the one who is the resurrection and the life can change both their presuppositions and their eternal destiny. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John chapter 11, verse 25. Creationists have to be prepared to change mistaken interpretations and models, but not change the word of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. And creationists always need to remember that the point of giving answers in regard to the creation-evolution issue is ultimately to point people to the word of God that saves.
so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. We need to be prepared to change models, but stand firm on God's word. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. The title of that article is, Do Creationists Change? Ken Ham wants us to make sure that we don't get sidetracked. Ken's message has become even more timely today. The Lord has blessed Answers in Genesis and allowed Ken to share all over the world for the last four decades on the relevance and authority of the Bible, particularly in Genesis. Get the 25th anniversary edition of Ken's original book, The Lie, and discover that the authority of the Bible stands forever. Get The Lie at AnswersBookstore.com. Ken Ham addresses another common misconception in this next article. This one is often raised by Christians who disagree with his views on creation. Does it really matter how old the earth is, especially in light of the church's need to share the gospel? These two topics are more closely related than most Christians realize. Can a person believe in an old earth and an old universe millions or billions of years in age and be a Christian? First of all, let's consider three verses that sum up the gospel and salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 clearly explains, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Numerous other passages could be cited, but not one of them states in any way that a person has to believe in a young earth or universe to be saved. And the list of those who cannot enter God's kingdom, as recorded in passages like Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, certainly does not include old earthers. Many great men of God who are now with the Lord have believed in an old earth. Some of these explained away the Bible's clear teaching about a young earth by adopting the classic gap theory. Others accepted a day-age theory or positions such as theistic evolution, the framework hypothesis, and progressive creation. Scripture plainly teaches that salvation is conditioned upon faith in Christ, with no requirement for what one believes about the age of the earth or universe. Now, when I say this, People sometimes assume, then, that it does not matter what a Christian believes concerning the supposed millions of years' age for the earth and universe. Even though it is not a salvation issue, the belief that earth history spans millions of years has very severe consequences. Let me summarize some of these. Authority issue. The belief in millions of years does not come from Scripture, but from the fallible methods that secularists use to date the universe. To attempt to fit millions of years into the Bible, you have to invent a gap of time that almost all Bible scholars agree the text does not allow, at least from a hermeneutical perspective. Or you have to reinterpret the days of creation as long periods of time, even though they are obviously ordinary days in the context of Genesis chapter 1. In other words, you have to add a concept, millions of years, from outside Scripture into God's Word. 
This approach puts man's fallible ideas in authority over God's Word. As soon as you surrender the Bible's authority in one area, you unlock a door to do the same thing in other areas. Once the door of compromise is open, even if ajar just a little, subsequent generations push the door open wider. Ultimately, this compromise has been a major contributing factor in the loss of biblical authority in our Western world. The church should heed the warning of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Contradiction Issue A Christian's belief in millions of years totally contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. Here are just three examples. Thorns Fossil thorns are found in rock layers that secularists believe to be hundreds of millions of years old, so supposedly they existed millions of years before man. However, the Bible makes it clear that thorns came into existence after the curse. Then to Adam he said, Because you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Disease. The fossil remains of animals, said by evolutionists to be millions of years old, show evidence of diseases, like cancer, brain tumors, and arthritis. Thus, such diseases supposedly existed millions of years before sin. Yet Scripture teaches that after God finished creating everything and placed man at the pinnacle of creation, he described the creation as very good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Certainly calling cancer and brain tumors very good does not fit with Scripture and the character of God. Diet The Bible clearly teaches in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29-30 through 30, that Adam and Eve and the animals were all vegetarian before sin entered the world. However, we find fossils with lots of evidence showing that animals were eating each other, supposedly millions of years before man and thus before sin. Death Issue Romans chapter 8 verse 22 makes it clear that the whole creation is groaning as a result of the fall, the entrance of sin. One reason for this groaning is death, the death of living creatures, both animals and man. Death is described as an enemy, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 26, which will trouble creation until one day it is thrown into the lake of fire. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 and other passages make it obvious that physical death of man and really death in general, entered the once perfect creation because of man's sin. However, if a person believes that the fossil record arose over millions of years, then death, disease, suffering, carnivorous activity, and thorns existed millions of years before sin. The first death was in the Garden of Eden, when God killed an animal as the first blood sacrifice. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 a picture of what was to come in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ stepped into history to pay the penalty of sin, to conquer our enemy, death. By dying on a cross and being raised from the dead, Jesus conquered death and paid the penalty for sin. Although millions of years of death before sin is not a salvation issue per se, I personally believe that it is really an attack on Jesus' work on the cross. Recognizing that Christ's work on the cross defeated our enemy, death, is crucial to understanding the good news of the gospel. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away.
Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. The title of that article asks a direct question. Does the gospel depend on a young earth? Ken Ham is deeply concerned that Christians understand how the gospel is related to debates about the age of the earth. It matters what we say about the earth's age because we can deter people from hearing the gospel if we get it wrong. But in the next article, Ken emphasizes that it's not enough to change people's minds about creation and the age of the earth. We all need the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul makes it clear that from what we observe around us, a creator obviously exists. If someone doesn't believe this, they are without excuse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The Bible also plainly says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that we need to do more than recognize our Creator. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So even if a person believes in a creator and is a creationist, he will be separated from God forever, just as an atheist will, unless he receives the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. See John chapter 14, verse 6. Otherwise, that person cannot spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. So from a biblical perspective, it is not good enough for us just to see a person converted from evolutionism to creationism. God did not fill the universe with his glory, just so we could be awed by it. He wanted us to turn to him, to know him, to submit our lives to him, and to enjoy him forever. From the perspective of understanding the ultimate meaning of life, merely seeing the wonders of creation and recognizing a designer is a futile exercise unless a person comes to know the Creator-Redeemer, who is revealed in the written Word of God, the Bible. After all, nature alone does not tell us what we need to know in order to be saved. Rather, we must turn to God's written revelation for the answers. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Also, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11 states, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God, not man's words, convicts people and brings them to faith in Christ. Certainly, in a world where evolutionary naturalism pervades the culture, we need to show people the evidence for the intelligent creator. In the public schools, students are indoctrinated in the Darwinian view of the origin of life and man. They're taught that everything arose by natural processes, with no supernatural activity involved. These people need to see how obvious it is that life could not have arisen through naturalism. But it would be disastrous simply to show people the evidence for an intelligent designer and not to pursue the topic any further. When we talk to people about an intelligent designer, we must recognize the ultimate need of each human. If we leave the Creator's identity a mystery, we invite people to consider all sorts of gods as this possible intelligence, instead of the one true Creator God. Mankind's sinful heart is too corrupt to find God without the Scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 states, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 explains that humans are dead in trespasses and sins. Humans cannot raise themselves from the dead. Only the one who has ultimate power over death can do that.
the infinite Creator God. Romans chapter 3 verse 11 tells us that there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. If someone is convinced that some intelligence or creator must have designed the universe, their sinful heart will not want the true God. We are in rebellion against our Creator God. People are more likely to pursue a false God than the true one. The human heart does not want to submit to the word of the one who created us. That is the very nature of our sin, inherited from Adam, after he rebelled against the words God clearly gave him in the Garden of Eden. Christians use many powerful arguments to show people that they have no excuse for denying the Creator. Christians must also follow through, however, by sharing what the Bible reveals about the true God and His unique plan of salvation and restoration. Otherwise, their listeners might put their faith in good works and seek after a Hindu God, a New Age God, or the Muslim God. As Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, we must share the whole message of the Creator, including the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins, which God planned before the beginning of time. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. It's not enough just to convert someone to be a creationist. As the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28 tells us, we need to preach the gospel, to see people saved and their hearts turned to their Creator. Where a person stands in relation to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the most important thing in the entire universe. No, not all creationists will go to heaven. But heaven awaits all creationists who place their trust in Jesus Christ, the Creator and Redeemer. That article by Ken Ham highlights the issue that matters most to a creationist. Do all creationists go to heaven? In the end, it's all about heaven and living with the Creator for all eternity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless. If you like the Creation Answers podcast, you'll love Answers Magazine. Subscribe for a full year of the print edition, and you'll automatically get access to the audio and digital versions of every issue as well. Right now, you can even save an extra 10%. Just enter the exclusive discount code PODCAST10 at AnswersMagazine.com. That's PODCAST10 at AnswersMagazine.com.